Welcome to the Weekend Sports Cars in what's going to be a unique edition. Comes out at the moment and uh, presented to you, as always, by Cooper Tyres and by our good friends at the Justice Brothers. Uh, but presented this week, uh, not with my good friend and pal Marshall Pruitt, uh, but by me, Graham Goodwin, and by my partner in crime, Stephen Kilby. Say hello, Stephen. Hi, uh, Now, there's a good reason for this, as some of you might have noticed from Marshall's social media uh, this past week. Uh, Marshall is busy doing other far more important things in motorsport right now, and our best wishes to his good lady for a rapid recovery. There's another reason why this show is going to be a little bit unique, and that's because, as you might gather from the slightly rumbly background soundtrack, we're doing this one on the move. We're aboard the DSC Fun Bus, Delhi Sports Car, on our way back from a pre test at Spa. Some news of that in just a moment. So format's going to be much the same. Uh, Stephen's going to be serving up the, as many questions as we can between where we are at the moment in Liège, in Belgium, and uh, the Channel Tunnel uh, on the coast, of course, of France, uh, on our way back to the UK. Uh, but before we get into questions, where will we be? Well, we spent a couple of days at uh, the fabulous Spa-Francorchamps circuit, where in sharp contrast to the just simply dreadful weather we had for the FI World Endurance Championship, we've had glorious weather today for day two of the test that featured the first appearance of Brendan Hartley aboard the Toyota LMP1 hybrid, uh, featured Michel Otto's uh, tyre testing car, having the mother and father of all shunts reducing itself to more or less its component parts. Happily no damage, though, to Alessandro, Alessandro uh, Greedy, who was aboard that car. Uh, we've witnessed a new car that's coming to the Le Mans 24 hours for the first time with uh, the APM Monaco Porsche. But the reason we've been there is to keep a weather eye on the Ginetta LMP1 uh, programme and its, furthest, uh, its latest development test. We'll have a lengthy interview for Inside the Sports Car Paddock next week with Lawrence Tomlinson about that uh, programme and about the news that broke today as we're recording it that uh, a two-car entry has been posted for the Ginetta LMP1 for the next season, 2019-2020 of the FIA World Endurance Championship. So all of that was going on, and plenty on both racer.com and on dailysportscar.com about all of that from both me and from Stephen. For now, we're going to get stuck into your questions, and with apologies that it's going to be a little bit more single voice, uh, but Stephen's going to serve up these questions rather than me reading them, because since I'm driving the DSC fun bus, that would be insane. <laughs> well, Stephen, far away. We're going to kick it off this week uh, with the IMSA questions, so far away. So the first question we've got comes from John Sable on Facebook. He says... What's the horsepower number that will get manufacturers excited about electrification in DPI 2.0? The 50 horsepower you mentioned previously does sound unimpressive. Uh, it does. Uh, I think that's been uh, that's been certainly the response from uh, at least one major manufacturer considering a DPI Gen 2 program. Uh, clearly, there's the Emsa have got a real decision to make. It's a real balancing act between being accused in some way of tokenism, um, but also retaining 
the relevance that that electrification brings. Absolutely no one understand how divisive this is, particularly to kind of traditional motorsport purists, but the reality of life now is that very many motor manufacturers are going to start to struggle to justify uh, those kinds of projects without some semblance of electrification or a similar kind of technology transfer that coming into those programs. Um, what number would I consider? Well, certainly what we've been told by at least one of those manufacturers is that the number they're being, that's being touted right now gives them a problem. So clearly, the answer is going to be a larger number than about 50. Um, should it be as high as we've seen in the LMP1 cars in recent years? And for those that aren't aware, that's certainly well into the hundreds, the multiple hundreds. Uh, the answer is pretty clearly, if you're looking to keep the budgets down, no. Is there potential for a happy medium? I think that one's going to come out of the wash remarkably quickly. And it's going to come down to whether or not there was bluff being employed uh, by at least one of those manufacturers in the recent uh, working group meetings, or whether or not they can be won around to IMSA's way of thinking. It becomes then a straight choice. Do you go IMSA's way and lose that potential manufacturer, or do you turn up a wick and potentially uh, have an impact on the budgets and on the uh, the willingness of other manufacturers to crack on with DPI Gen 2. That could be remarkably difficult uh, question to answer and it could be a remarkably significant question to be answered depending on how things go amongst other things with car cars we push forward. The next question comes from Matt Nida on Facebook. Nida. Oh, Nida. Yeah. Think dirty knee. Apologies. <laughs> Matt Nida. The recent announcement by Dragon Speed makes mention that they'll continue with a reduced WC LMP2 programme in 2019-20 and are considering running Daytona and Sebring with IMSA again. While these two races are obviously the crown jewels of the IMSA calendar, Dragon Speed and possibly other global teams who wish to enter would be just two more races shy of contesting the Mitchell Endurance Cup. Might this be an opportunity for IMSA to try and revive the LMP2 grid by attracting global teams to the Mitchell Endurance Cup rounds? I would go as far as to suggest that they could award one of the two IMSA-allocated auto entries for Le Mans to the LMP2 winner of the Mitchell Endurance Cup in an effort to attract global teams. It's a, it's a very good question, Matt. And, you know, I'm sure the Brains Trust at uh, IMSA have thought through those prospects. The key to it is, what is the appeal of those individual races pretty clearly what El Julian has told us and has told the world now is that uh, they are considering uh, the uh, Sebring considering Sebring and Daytona the Florida double if you like um, the key to your idea and it's not the worst idea I've heard not by a long chalk is increasing the attractiveness of certainly Watkins Glen which sits, of course, pretty close to the Le Mans 24 Hours for any team that's actually considering doing that race. And, of course, it would be another transatlantic trip for that whole squad. This is a team that currently has access to two Orica uh, 07 LMP2 cars, one of which they've already told us has been committed to the LMS. Could it be the case that they might commit both? They might, in 2020, the LMS, and then contest the additional races. Uh, I think it's certainly... Uh, an idea with some validity and it's particularly valid 
bearing in mind the fact that we have seen in recent years a couple of uh, awardees of the uh, the IMSA uh, auto entries step away from those entries. In other words, you want to be putting people into a competition where they absolutely know that that's a key part of the appeal. And what we know from the LMP2 teams that are contesting in Europe and increasingly they're beginning to come forward and commit to potential programmes in Asia is that the opportunity to earn that Le Mans place is a very valuable commodity. So I think it's certainly an idea worthy of consideration. I'd be interested to see what IMSA think. The next one comes from Holger Oppelt on Facebook. With an LMP2 class in the WC and ELMS facing only small numbers of Dallara P217 chassis participating in events due to lack of performance, shouldn't IMSA's LMP2 class be more in favour of those runners um, because of the possibility to equalise capabilities with BOP compared to the Oracle 07s? Same applies to Legios. Again, interesting. I, th- I don't see very much love in the room for uh, further equalisation of BOP over and above the burden that has already been laid upon them. There are also some restrictions, as I recall, placed upon IMSA about what they can do with the uh, the LMP2 base, and in particular, if the LMP2 base is going to be used for anybody earning the right to go to the Le Mans 24 hours. So, it's an interesting question. We're not a million miles away from answers to just exactly what's going to happen with uh, those Delara and Ligier numbers beginning to tail off as they have done dramatically so actually with the Delaras uh, in the European Le Mans series um, that said you talk to others and they will tell you look at what happened for instance at the start of the FIWC race with the possibility of um, a well driven Delara duking it out right at the end of the field as Guido van der Garde did is it a bad car? No. Is it not as good a car as the Orica? I would say that across the uh, stint lengths and the race lengths, that's almost certainly the case. But a well-driven Ligier has shown itself able to actually get uh, onto a podium, as it did uh, at Monza, with the uh, with a well-driven crew. Uh, United Autosports bringing that car the podium at the end of last season United Autosports winning two of the races I don't think it's always quite as simple as that's the best car remember there is a radical difference between the quality of the driving squads across uh, the Pro-Am teams uh, in Europe and I'm sure the same is, is true in IMSA as well. We have seen it considered haven't we, BOP and P2 we yep. came close to it I think towards the end of last year. We did and, you know, and that's been a conversation that we've had with the ACO and I'm sure the teams have had with the ACO. I sense a reluctance to step into that abyss to be honest with you. I sense a reluctance to spend terribly much more time worrying about whether or not your customer base has chosen effectively the correct chassis. The inevitability too is there are going to be some circuits that suit one package rather than the other. No doubt in my mind across the board the Oracle has been proven at the moment to be um, probably the best choice across the board but I don't think it's as quite as cut and dried as that at every single circuit. Next one comes from Gimme Clout over on the USCR's Reddit page. It's referring to an article that was posted um, online talking about the fact that DPI could be a lifeline that the ACO and FIA need to replace their top class 
in the WC. He's asking what, what the take is on it. Uh, DPI uh, as a potential plan B, the much vaunted plan B in um, uh, for the WEC. It's an interesting prospect, isn't it? Uh, we've got a fair amount of guesswork going on about what plan B actually is. I can tell you what it isn't. It isn't class one. Um, it isn't the DTM Super GT new regulations. Uh, it does not appear to be GTE+. Plus. Uh, that pro- programme certainly has its advocates, and rather than kind of grasping at the straw of that for a headline, I'll say as it is. It's certainly GTE+, Plus as its advocates, uh, they tend to be advocates with, you know, a, um, you know, with something in the game to gain by that. Uh, the same with DPI. DPI right now absolutely has value potentially as something that might add depth to the Le Mans 24 hours and maybe to the WEC but to do so whether it's Gen 1 or more likely Gen 2 the reality is that you're going to have to have rather more factories interested and involved in that marketplace than we currently have because at the moment there simply aren't enough neither are there enough immediately in prospect to uh, to sustain both a very healthy North American Continental Championship, IMSA, and the potential for any kind of global product, WEC or whatever might come after WEC. So the key, for, as far as I'm concerned, is could it? Yes, of course it could. As could hypercar if that comes forward, as could some melding of the current regulations. Will it? Only, it will only become a potential saviour for all of this if the number of manufacturers uh, that are backing that kind of programme, because ultimately it is going to be manufacturer marketing money that makes the difference, only if that number of manufacturers goes rather further north than the relatively small number we've got right now. I was going to say about GTE+, and there being the potential appetite for, for that type of formula outside of factory teams. The reason I say this is because I spoke to Christian Reed today, and he was talking Chris, to Christian Reed, we should say, from Proton, uh, from Proton Competition, the you know, preeminent Porsche privateer in European and global racing. Yeah, it's Porsche's, Porsche's AF Corsa, if you will. Effectively. Um, and he was talking about his experience he had last year getting a chance to drive the Porsche 919 and how incredible it was. But he sort of said, you know, as much as I've looked at prototype racing before, I'm going to have to stick with GTs because it's just unbelievably complex. But he said to me, with the GTE Plus thing, if we had amateurs with, you know, of his ilk coming in with GTE cars with better aero, more power, he'd be well up for that. He, he genuinely thinks it's something that could work for him. Well, it's because he's a nutter for the most part. <laughs> so Christian, Christian, massive, massive enthusiast, and as you know, has been around in GTE and its predecessor categories for more than twenty years with the family-owned team. It, it, it has merit, but then again very many proposals have got merit hypercar despite its detractors has got real merit the thought that you could actually have you know a uh, a premium prototype class that has got visual relevance to manufacturers is something that's been talked about time and time and time again the problem is have you got enough of a uh, support base customer base manufacturer base to warrant throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And my concern now with what we've got to hypercar, with hypercar, is have we got enough? The same for GT, uh, GT Plus, if that became a thing. The same with DPI, 
uh, Gen 2 is have we got enough with one set of regulations to make a viable difference without impacting what's a really healthy Pro-Am customer base in P2 and GTE-AM, for instance. And, of course, GTE uh, Pro Plus, if you like, it sounds more and more like some kind of performance supplement you, you get in the back room of a gym every time I kind of think about it. But the, the reality of that could be that you then mess with the customer base that you've got with GTM, which has been the ACO would acknowledge the surprise hit of the WEC in this transition to a winter season and you're not just going to be able to wheel out the GTE car with just you know a, di- a slightly different aero package and low ball power, these cars are going to have to go through proper re-engineering oh, to be able to match this pace and that's something that I, I suppose some people might not even think about Well, you, you think about it, if you're, if you're adding the, the kind of level of pace uh, that you are talking about for these cars I mean, you, you know, take a look, any WEC race um, at the uh, the fastest lap, for instance, fastest race lap of a GTE Pro car, and then the fastest lap you would need to be looking at of the LMP2 class. Before we get into LMP1, look at the difference that, that would make. That's that's going to have to be uh, that's going to have to be delivered immediately in terms of performance through aero and through power. But then think about the impact that's going to have on cooling. It's going to have particularly on braking and then on tyre technology. That this is not a cheap option. This is not a cheap option. It is not simply a matter of basically, you know, crashing into your local Halfords and coming out with, you know, wings at every corner. This is a massive re-engineering of, okay, an albeit um, existing platform. But then again, that's exactly what DPI effectively would be around an LMP2 platform. And in some cases, there is the argument that there is carryovers for some of the existing chassis technology for LMP1 into hypercar. So, very easy to say there's a simple cost-effective solution. There is no cheap way to go premier class racing in any sort of motorsport, and certainly not endurance sport. Next we've got <coughs> Smoking Puppy 841. My favourite, by the way, my favourite Twitter it's handle. It's a great name. It is. If theoretically the Riley slash Multimatic, oh, oh sorry, if theoretically Riley slash Multimatic were weren't able to build September 2021 and beyond LMP2 cars, and theoretically both Mazda and Ford wanted to enter DPI 2.0, which constructor do you think they might go and look at? That's a lot of theories, isn't it? Theoretically, uh, <laughs> reality is, look, what do we know? I can't see there being a position placed before a valued customer, sorry, a valued manufacturer program that in any way is going to impact uh, whatsoever on the choice uh, of that team and the chassis that they're currently employing. I can tell you, and you know this as well because you're part of the same conversation I'm about to talk about here, uh, uh, Stephen, is that uh, those that have experienced that Multimatic chassis are extremely... um, Complimentary about its abilities, about its quality. I don't see that going away anytime soon, unless those factory programs go away. In which case, the the, the, the question is negated. The really interesting question here is, what happens next? Not next, not just with Gen Two DPI, but with the next iteration of LMP Two. Do we retain legacy chassis? If those manufacturers decide not to enter the LMP2 market, do they add more? Do we go further than four? There's, there's an argument to say that you know we could add maybe at least a couple more. We know you need to look at you know other um, relevant kind of prototype technology. You look to L3 
LMP3 for instance where we've got Norma, Leisure already in of course LMP2 and Janetta for that matter so there's lots of unanswered questions at the moment I just hope that while we're sorting out LMP1 and everything falls out from that and plan A, plan B and any points in between that there's a weather eye as well on what impacts that's going to have a little further down the chain not the not the, the the kind of the quality chain but in terms of the chain of where those key components the chassis technology in particular lands that's the key point now for whatever lies ahead for dpi whether or not it's as a global formula which could be the case or whether or not it's just retaining the level of momentum that undoubtedly m we've got behind that formula I think it's safe to say when we spoke to Ollie Plar about that master chassis, he was blown away by it, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we were talking in comparison, this was the point at which Ollie was about to become the second ever race driver to campaign in a race, um, one of each of the four, at least one of each of the four available LMP2 chassis. And Ollie's experience, of course, of the Multimatic chassis came with that in DPI form. And yeah, absolutely, he was effusive in his, his praise for the Multimatic chassis, you know, and, and the way in which that, that product had been developed forward. And he's a guy, yeah, like you say, he's got a lot of experience, not only just racing, but developing. Yes, absolutely. You know, he's worked with Ligier down through the years as a de facto factory driver, doing a lot of the development work on, well, you know, multiple iterations of Ligier uh, LMP2, and I believe LMP3 cars as well. It's so one Absolutely. So, so there's lots and lots there to kind of conjure with, but it's a good question. Next one comes from Stephen Waterston. This is from Twitter. He says, long-time listener, first-time caller. You're welcome. Several weeks ago, MP mentioned that the Ford GT was toned down to race in the GT class. If the restrictions were removed, could the Ford GT run with the IMSA DPI class? Uh, again, I think the honest answer is we don't know. There's no doubt you could do something to any car to bring it up to spec. At what cost? And whether or not you could do that within a regulatory framework that currently exists is, is, is another set of questions. Could you, you know, basically um, uh, soup that thing up, add a little bit of extra aero, not that it's got any kind of shortage of aero, um, the answer is, of course, you could, but as we were saying a little earlier, it's not just about the speed, it's about everything else that goes to that package, and particularly when you're dealing with, you know, a turbocharged uh, powertrain, as you are with a Ford, cooling has got a massive, massive part to play in that. And, of course, when you're putting in the various scoops and rads and everything that's required to cool a car, that, again, has a massive impact on the ability for the aero that's currently present to do its job. It's interesting to see what GTE cars can do when they don't have restrictions on. Weren't you present once when you saw a Ferrari yep. GTE car running unrestricted at Bahrain? Yeah, we've seen that, that, that car. We've seen that from a, a well-known and very wealthy um, gentleman that has been uh, present in motorsport. Has actually, I believe, three such cars where they are unrestricted um, and lightened, and the ability. Uh, so the legend goes uh, with that car, with this guy, who is a decent gentleman peddler, is that he could match factory driver pace in that car. Um, so factory driver pace in a regular GTE car, he could match that with his effectively unrestricted, lightened and otherwise enhanced uh, GTE car. So the capabilities are there with those things, whether or not that 
would survive you know, an all-in battle around a 6, 12 or 24-hour race is again an entirely different proposition. And at what cost? And with the Ford, I remember when it was first launched, I remember your reaction when you came back to the press room at the moment when you'd see it for the first time, you said that thing's it looks like a prototype. It does look like I mean, a prototype. I mean, that, that yeah. would be interesting to see what that thing could do. But, but equally, then you have to look back and see where we were with GT2, GTE in earlier iterations and what we've seen added in there. And, you know, this is, to a degree, part of the regulatory um, enigma, isn't it? Which is, what we've seen is power has gradually been dragged away from those cars and they've offset the reduction in power that we've seen over the years with an increase in aero so aero has become far more part of the equation you look back at something like the Ferrari 430 uh, GT2 that's not that long ago look at that compared to the current Ferrari 488 GTE it's a completely different world and you know Ford have basically done what you'd expect uh, Ford and you know Multimatic and Chip Ganassi Racing and everything has been involved in the development of that uh, to do which is to completely use everything that's available to them in the regulatory template nothing wrong with that it's given us an extraordinary looking and extraordinary performing GT car uh, but does that make it an LMP2 car, which is effectively the next step up we're talking about, or indeed a DPI car? No, it doesn't. And it doesn't for a variety of reasons. And, and remember how much um, development work that the Vantage went through when Aston re-engineered the rear end of that car, didn't they, effectively? Well, I mean, the, the, the Aston Martin Vantage, the older um, V8 Vantage, you know, the, you look at the, just what, what they were able to do within the template of what even then were fairly restrictive rules what you saw was things like fuel tank being relocated completely different roll cage totally different bodywork that actually looked the same so you'd actually have to look at detailed differences to see whether or not you were talking about a slightly older version of the old now uh, a much loved V8 Vantage the normally aspirated car or the newer uh, version of that car so you know, we're dealing here with extremely clever people, and the, the first thing that clever people do is to examine every dot and comma and set of rules and regulations. The second thing they do is to find where the holes are. That'll do us for IMSA, so we're going to switch now to WC Asian Le Mans ELMS. Whack, and, whack, yeah. whack, 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 Elms, Echo, Asms, we call it, yes. or something. And we're going to start with Ian Chicken from hey, Facebook. Ian. And he says, can you really see anyone buying into the Genesta LMP1 with the ongoing hypercar fiasco and now the Dragon Speed have quit? Uh, well, okay, let's go through that. Uh, so where are we with uh, the, the Genetta uh, programme? Well, as we said at the top of the show, uh, today has seen confirmation from Genetta that a two, sorry, two cars have been entered for the WEC and that uh, the programme continues now. Uh, there's going to be more information, more announcements to come about exactly what that programme, or indeed programmes, looks like. But I've seen a couple of bits and pieces of comments in, in reaction to both Genetta's announcement and indeed to Daily Sportscast's coverage of that announcement today, basically saying so, things like, it's a very internet comment, so basically what you're saying is, you're 90% there, all you need is the money. No! Genetta are going to be racing in the FIWC. Genetta's cars will be racing in the FIWC. Of that, that is now confirmed. You know, utter disaster aside, 
uh, that is now confirmed. That is the intent of bringing in those entries. Exactly what those cars will uh, have in terms of sponsorship, who were driving them, what the team name is, other aspects of that package. Oh, by the way, with the AR engine. Uh, but other aspects of that package, you're going to have to wait and see. But can you right now, if you're putting forward, you know, putting together your spotter's guide for uh, Silverstone in September, put two Ginetta ARs on that list? The answer is, as of today, yes, you can. The only reason that Ginetta are not saying today we will be there is because they are respecting the reality that the FIWEC is a selection event. It's an invitational championship. They have to wait. They have to give courtesy to that process. Um, not say we are going to be there. They are saying we've put an entry in exactly the same way as you would for uh, the Formula One World Championship if you're a new entrant to it. In exactly the same way as you do, we see every year with the courtesy that's given to the ACO for the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Don't read into the nuance of that language that they're unsure they've entered. Money will have been paid uh, for that entry. Uh, and yes, I get it and I hear the next thing about, yeah, but isn't that what happened last time? What happened last time was massively unfortunate and it came down for, uh, to an inability to get the required funding to make the previous programme with Ginetta out of China. That's it. That's as, it's as simple as that. Guarantees were given, contracts were signed, they were not delivered upon. And, you know, we can all point fingers and say we think it was that part of the bargain or that part of the bargain that went wrong. The reality was here that what certainly didn't go wrong, it certainly wasn't down to the Ginetta team, uh, the Ginetta team at Garforth, whose job, let's face it, is to design, uh, build, and to a degree develop that package. That's where we are now. That's what you and I have just been doing, Stephen. And it was certainly received extremely well by the backroom team uh, when the announcement was made to them, um, you know, as a group, uh, by Lawrence Tomlinson, that he could confirm that entries had been filed for those two cars. I think it's unremittingly good news for a class that, at the moment, frankly, needs the help. Next up, we've got a question about Glickenhaus. This is from Robert um, Pierley Jr. He says, in your hashtag me personally personal opinion, <laughs> what are the chances that the situation develops in such a way that Glickenhaus drops out of the car car program? It would be a shame that o the only company who's committed drops out because the rules are catered to OEMs. Um, I agree completely. I think Jim, Jim Glickenhaus and his tiny little team have behaved massively honourably. They've now confirmed their preferred option uh, because, of course, they've had confusion to play with when we've got into the will we go down the road car based effort will we go down the prototype based effort they've confirmed that they're effectively going down a prototype based effort with their 007 uh, SEG 007 proposal uh, so they are committed to it what they need, what we need and by the way I should say that I have seen because Jim has shared this with me a confirmation from the ACO that they're interested in uh, hypercar, car car has been acknowledged, confirmed by the ACO and they're now engaged in that process. What they need and we all need is clarity about where we now stand. I think we are weeks away from getting that. Um, be assured if there's good news we'll be hearing about it in the Le Mans 24 hours week. Uh, I know Steve, one of Stephen's favourite things in the whole year um, 
with sports car racing and of course he's got massive highlights with all of that on every single week is now grimacing as I say it is the ACO press conference at Le Mans one of the most beloved moments for absolutely everybody involved in sports car racing reporting and by the way I hope you appreciate the effort it takes to enunciate that so clearly with my tongue wedged firmly in my cheek. Um, it's, it's, it's spectacularly not that welcome to have a lengthy press conference in the middle of, frankly, the busiest period of our working year. Uh, but yeah, let's wait and see what happens. We're not going to have very long to wait. I think what I can say at this stage is if there is good news, we'll be hearing it. If there's got not good news, we'll be hearing nothing. Uh, and if we do hear nothing, that's the point, I think, at which people will start to be worrying a great deal. Um, we'll also add here, by the way, and I'm sure there's further questions about Car Car, some very interesting stuff around in terms of uh, opinion about what's happening. Marshall Pruitt's piece on Racer uh, that came out of uh, a meeting that happened in the USA with representatives of the ACO in IMSA. Uh, fine piece of investigative journalism that was uh, and also present to you our listeners if you haven't read it uh, the excellent piece put forward by Andrew Cotton at Race Car Engineering on uh, their website don't agree with absolutely everything he says in that but I think it's a piece of analysis of an emerging and unclear situation I think Andrew's done a great job of actually outlining the issues there and I urge you to uh, read that by all means come back to us it may very well be that we ask Andrew to come on and answer a few questions as well the problem with those of us writing about it is that it almost seems like every time we have a conversation with somebody senior or somebody involved it contradicts the it. previous one yeah, it, it feels like we have a different opinion every day we've, we've, you know, we've come a number of times close to writing good news and bad news stories only to do what you should do as a responsible journalist and check your sources and go clarify that position with perhaps an additional source and on more or less every single occasion you'll find somebody in a position of influence, somebody in a position where they should have that knowledge where uh, they will then directly contradict, without being told exactly what the story is sometimes, directly contradict something that's been reported to a certainty what that shows is there is genuine confusion, there is genuine debate in some ways about what the chosen uh, uh, way forward is going to be should we be saying it's chaos? No. But if you're going to avoid accusations of chaos, the reality is at some point you need to communicate the opposite. And I know that's been difficult for the ACO, but we are getting to the stage where to sort this out for everybody outside those direct discussions, and you know, it is important that other audiences have confidence in that vision moving forward that something now needs to be said and something now needs to be laid out as being the chosen pathway forward because the, as we've said before I've certainly said before that clock is ticking very loudly now towards the point where we've either got to have a solution in place for 2020, 2021 or there's got to be a plan B or a delay or both and no matter what your opinions are on it you can't forget just how much of a plate spinning act this is and how uh, difficult it is it's, to make a decision. It's massively situation. difficult because, you know, I mean, you know, we've had conversations even this week where, you know, and I, I really do mean this. Don't underestimate, you know, my seriousness here. This could be the last chance to get this right before we get into a whole different 
uh, era of technology in motorsport. We're not very far away from that, and it might be this is the you know the penultimate, anti-penultimate, whichever iteration, but it's getting more difficult. We've seen today confirmation that BMW is stepping away from their WEC programme for all sorts of reasons. Part of that, as we heard from Jens Market when we talked to him at Sebring, was to do with the um, the way in which they could activate uh, their product and their messaging uh, at the WEC events. I sort of accept that. I would go uh, and present an opposite, uh, an opposite point of view as well, which is I'd like to see more attempt from BMWs to do that, actually. Um, the, the, you know, the, the emphasis here cannot just be on one side of the debate. The manufacturers have got to step up too and make something of those events, as we do see at IMSA, as we do see in other uh, events around the globe with other sanctioning bodies. Only they know, because they're in those meetings, only they know... Um, what proposals have been put forward that perhaps haven't been acted upon. Um, very sad to see uh, the BMW effort going away from the WEC. Uh, I'd have been sadder still, frankly, if the effort had been more impressive. Mm. Look, a couple more questions about Glickenhouse. This one's about Glickenhouse and by Collis. James Stewart asks on Twitter... I guess judging by Bicolors and Glickenhaus having images posted of hypercar concept, Bicolors being a drawing of the rear end whilst Glickenhaus conf- confirming involvement still, is that prototype car car has perhaps been passed. Is that it or is it political? So there's pressure. I think it's all of it. I mean, you know, if you were there putting your investment in, which clearly Jim Glickenhaus uh, has, and uh, so has Colin Collis, you know, it, frankly, even if all you're doing is commissioning somebody to come up with an artist sketch, and we know that Mike Collis certainly have been advertising months ago for people like, you know, hybrid drivetrain engineers, they're putting effort into that uh, process. Of course, they're then invested in that process. So they're invested in trying to make this work as best they possibly can. The fact that their program might be less in monetary terms than, let's say, I don't know, Aston Martin or Toyota, doesn't matter. As a proportion of their available resource, it's huge. So clearly they want to defend their position, because let's put it this way, what we absolutely know is that Glickenhaus, sorry, neither Glickenhaus nor Bicolas, has either a GTE Pro Plus possibility or indeed a DPI Gen 2 possibility. Uh, we know those those are not have not been in the, their orbit. So why wouldn't they defend that with whatever tools they've got at their disposal? Will that be telling in the the final analysis? I don't think it will. I think it gives a little bit of kind of um, shine on the body armor for hypercar if there are programs waiting to, to to come in the background and those conversations that Stephen and I have just been talking about have been varied from they've only got one to there's definitely another one that's very close to yeah what's actually holding this up is that two other manufacturers are holding a lot of cards and that's preventing people from making a decision which by the way for those uh, only as good as I am at maths means potentially four do I believe all four today no do I believe all four at the start of hypercar no do I believe they've got the prospects of more than one early? Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, the key is how close they are. And if you're if you're very close to having two to three to four manufacturers, 
trying to push it over the line is surely the more favourable thing for them to do rather than start again. But I agree with that, and I think the other thing is, is this too, it's it's all you can do when you are the ACO, the WEC, the FIA, that, that collegiate body, if you like, is to present a set of rules. You've then got to, albeit with encouragement and through negotiation and try to make these things e- easier, you've effectively then got to wait. Wait and see whether the people that have actually engaged with you in what, make no mistake, are lengthy discussions, meetings, email exchanges, conversations, you know, you name it. I'm sure they ought to lunch as well. Um, whether or not they finally can bring a programme together with the support of sometimes questioning board-level uh, process at a point in time when that has become immeasurably more difficult than it ever has been before. Uh, you know, I, I absolutely do not underestimate how difficult this process is. I completely understand why it is that, uh, if you like, those cards are being played close to the chest. My view is we are now getting to the point where, and they know it, they absolutely know it, we're getting now close to the point where credibility is on the line. And at some point, you've got to say something. And boy, oh boy, in the you know in a world as judgmental as it now is, in immediate terms, you've got to say the right thing, not the wrong thing. Uh, you know, think I'm wrong? Look at the the individual utterances that very many people decide define a particular program. Okay, I'll give you a for instance. Very many of the initial criticisms of Nissan's uh, GTRLM program were defined by an individual sentence spoken by Andy Palmer at the launch about his aspirations for that program. There's a fantastic um, uh, Twitter uh, stream at the moment. I'm using the wrong word, but I'm driving at 80 miles around a French motorway. It's hard to make the wrong, wrong word. Um, which was started by Ricardo de Villa looking to effectively inform and educate about the reality of that GTRLM programme and some extraordinary stuff has come out in that uh, in that conversation do take a look um, including uh, the revelation from Mulzang Mike Fuller uh, the patron of the uh, fantastic Mulzang Mike's uh, website which is a real uh, repository for, for brilliance and you know, some excellent archive stuff to do with the, the, the genesis of, the development of generations of sports prototypes. And that Mike, one of the things that got Mike to actually step away from regular updates from Mulsanne's uh, Corner was the response of what well, I, I think you kids call the haters um, around that programme, and that he just couldn't continue to try to defend the principle of innovation, whether it fails or whether, it, whether or not it, it succeeds, under the pressure exerted by just constant, repeated negativity. You know, what? when we look at other aspects of modern life, and I'm looking at you politics right now, something we need to take a good hard look at each other and say... Should we be just questioning our thoughts, our actions, our feelings about the way in which those kinds of matters are commented on with such vigour, at times such bile? You know, this is it's important that we actually give people space to think, space to innovate. And I would say this, 
space to fail and that failure once doesn't mean you don't get the chance to push again that's where things have changed that's why now it's so important that they make a decision that they can stick with and that will be will be sustainable for an extended period of time here's one for you Graham so with your background with your work that you've done in negotiations on a governmental level yeah okay put your you're the FIA and ACO in this. Oh, please don't say that. Okay, but in this in this instance, you are. How? Because people have accused them effectively of you know going weeks and months without communicating properly. Yep. Behind the scenes, how desperate are these guys to be able to just turn around and go? Do you know what this is? What's actually happening? I'll tell you right now, there is not be a single senior member of any of those bodies involved that isn't more eager than you I or anybody listening to this show to come out and say this is what we've got and the only reason or the only reasons they won't be doing that is one they haven't got anything or they haven't got enough to be credible doing it or two that they believe that by hanging on in there and continuing that negotiation that they will have more and better they're the only two reasons they're not doing it frankly to piss you off they're not doing that to, to make your life worse they're doing it because they're trying to succeed and they do need to be given space but they do know and I have had these conversations they do know that the time is now coming very close where they do need to make it clear where the difficulties are with those negotiations where we are uh, you know we're not entitled to know every dot comma of these, these kind of negotiations that's not our role whether or not that's us as a journalist as a you know as a fan that's not for us we're not entitled to that the immediacy of communication nowadays sort of gets you to the point where people feel that that's the case however common sense is something different to that common sense says that if you're going to bring a body of support and opinion with you you need to communicate back better and I think there are some lessons there for the bodies concerned about what it is they can say and to be given space to do that now we've got James Counter on Facebook and this is another one from um, Glickenhaus he says we're Glickenhaus looking to put more programmes on track in the medium term future how likely are they to expand their current setup to accommodate it well they already are they've uh, uh, Jim and the company have, have um, uh, developing a new manufacturing base based on what in fact was the old Highcroft Racing site in Danbury I think uh, so they're looking to actually build all their cars in the US although their um, race engineering side of things will still be with Podium Engineering in Italy but uh, Jim is very proud of where he wants to be with the new range of products for Click and House uh, where he wants them to be built in America he wants the car that's going to be a GT3 car to be built in America, he wants the car that's going to be a GT4 car, this road car equivalent to be built in the US, and that's very laudable indeed um, he's a very proud man, uh, he's got real ambition around that and again I'd say this about Klingenhaus he's done some fantastic stuff, you were there Stephen at the Nürburgring when they set pole position with that 003, what I was looking at right there, was Jim Klingenhaus picked up the trophy, which by the way bears his name because he donated it that was a very proud man oh yeah and he, he's bonkers but in the best possible way oh yeah and we, we're running out of that level of bonkers in sports car racing we're running out of that level of bonkers in, in life and I think <coughs> again ask yourself this out there 
dear listeners, um, what would you rather have? Would you rather have a, a sport that is wholly beholden to the kind of process that we've been talking about around car car now, OEM based, etc., etc., or would you like a bit of bonkers? Would you like to actually have something that gives somebody with the opportunity and the resource to do something at that kind of level as a private individual? Um, you know, there's another example. We've talked about that too. Stand up and be counted. Lawrence Tomlinson and Ginetta. You know, without people like Jim Glickenhouse and Lawrence Tomlinson, and there are lots of other examples of that, how much duller would our lives be in, you know, in our sport? How much duller would they have been over the decades, over the years? The reality, the reality of it is it would have been immeasurably less interesting, immeasurably less fun um, to observe what's coming not every one of those projects will succeed not every one of those projects is going to be a world beater some of them have been stand down you know, hilarious you know you'd be aware that we talk about the cannibal a lot on the weekend sports cars and the reason for that is we love the fact that they tried they went uh, went to go racing on a budget they tried they were there they were out you know every other weekend however long the cannibal was actually out there as a bunch of private guys trying to do something a little bit different was it ever going to uh, win the really big races? Well, not unless a meteorite struck the rest of the field. But am I pleased they tried? Absolutely 100%. I saw that car uh, race or run at speed for the first time at the Le Mans Classic uh, last year, and it put a massive smile on my face. That's what I want from my sport. I want to feel joyful about it. Next, we've got Smoking Puppy 841 again. Um, he says, is there any particular reason why Fred Makovicki has been dropped from Porsche's full-time GTE GTLM lineup for the past couple of years? It's a shame to see an incredibly quick driver not racing in the WC or IMSA week in, week out. Uh, the honest answer is I don't know. The answer to that, I've not seen Fred for a little wee while. I will tell you this, that factory programmes and factory drivers uh, live or die based on a pure analysis of their performance. That is something that is a, it's a, it's an analytical process that goes on all the time. Let's not presume that that's the case necessarily here for Fred. We don't know what's going on in the background at Porsche. We don't know whether or not they've got one of their real hot shoes involved in development of something we don't know about yet. We don't know. Um, but he is still very much part of the Porsche family. He's still remarkably quick. He's got a, a smile that would stun a horse from about 50 paces. And I hope very much that he's going to be continue to be part of that family for many years to come. He, though, as all factory drivers will be fully, fully well aware that there, are, there is, as always, a list of worthies coming up on the rails, and Porsche is absolutely no different to that. Look at the guys we've got coming through now, Matteo Caroli, uh, we've got Julian Anzlauer, we've got Thomas Prining. These are all extremely quick guys, and it keeps the current guys very much on their toes. It's a log jam. It, it, well, yes and no. I mean, you know, we do have a couple of, how can we put this slightly more senior, uh, in terms of years and experience, Porsche factory drivers, but that's not to say that there isn't a role there for them. You know, look at guys like your Bergmeister, look at guys like Patrick Long, you know, who are probably, definitely, closer to the end of their careers than the beginning, but they're now being utilised by Porsche in a very different way. They're now being utilised to add a real fire in the belly to some of their favourite pro-am uh, 
programs, partner programs, teams like Project One with Proton Competition and their, uh, uh, their, their valued customers. And those kind of things are just as valid. Uh, you know, I, I expect to see Fred McAvicki behind the wheel of a sports car going remarkably quickly for many, many years to come. Next one's from Luke Filippone on Facebook. He says, Hi, gents. If Toyota doesn't continue with whatever LMP1 becomes, what are the chances of them entering GTE with their new Z4 uh, Supra? Right. Uh, easy one. No way they'll be in GTE with a Supra. Not remotely close to being a package that's going to be capable of being developed to that degree um, in any meaningful way. The, the future for that car in uh, GT racing is a GT4 platform without a shadow of a doubt might we see something more extreme as things move forward possibly let's wait and see uh, but the reality for Toyota is going to be this the TSO 50 will race next season two car team we know that already you know we saw Brendan Hartley today uh, prepping for his role in replacing Fernando Alonso with the wheel of one of the two factory cars uh, we also know because Toyota have told us that will be the final season for the Toyota TS-050. Beyond that, everything relies on what happens with our hypercar, with car car. Everything relies on that. If that doesn't happen, for whatever reason, uh, then I think you're in a position where you have a strong likelihood that you lose Toyota to international sports car racing at the highest prototype level. Am I saying that that's going to happen? 100% no, I'm not, because I don't know. And I'm not going to play the game of guessing, and I'm not going to um, throw things at the internet that are overpopulated by the words could, for instance. That's not going to happen. The reality here is they're waiting, we're waiting. What I'm sensing, we've certainly found at uh, the Spa WC round, where there was some carefully scripted anger being transmitted from uh, the Toyota Kazoo Racing Camp. And if you want to hear that directly... Uh, play the, the uh, Inside the Sports Car Paddock that uh, featured an interview with uh, Toyota Kazoo Racing's team principal and you'll hear it directly uh, that was coming from lots of sources at Toyota it was clearly intended that that impression would come across and that means they're keen to exercise influence on the timing and the outcome of that process and they've been really clear about their position on it. Very clear. You know, and, you know, we, we could come up with all sorts of conspiracy theories or, you know, whatever else it is. The reality is this. Toyota have been, uh, through a lengthy period of time, number one, were saviours of the WEC when Peugeot uh, pulled out at the last moment. Uh, the WEC would not have happened without Toyota coming a year early, if you like, with, the, uh, the, with their then very new car. Number two is they've continued to invest in that platform ever since. Number three, they are still investing in that platform. Again, out testing ahead of Le Mans and you know, making the commitment to bringing that factory program for uh, another full WC season. That investment, though, um, they've decided that they need to think about what comes next in terms of a movement more towards the marketing side of things from the R&D. They're hanging on in there and waiting for what comes next in technology. They, however, now need to actually have uh, some surety about what comes next for, for Toyota Kazoo Racing for the corporate body. And you know, they're waiting with a degree less patience than even I am, and I'm not very patient. It's amazing, isn't it, just how things have changed in the space of 24, you know, 
48 months. Oh, staggering for I mean, Toyota because we've gone from them being the plucky underdog team that people were, you know, desperate to keep coming back every year because they wanted them to try and keep fighting on to win. So now people are going, I hope they quit. Well, I, I tell you what, anybody that says I hope Toyota quits, uh, sorry, but you need to take a good hard look at yourself and, and think about what that actually means. This is a major global company investing in a sport that if you're listening to this podcast, you love. And, you know, it's not their fault that nobody can step up to the plate. It's not their fault that others made corporate errors that got them leaving um, this this sport or this part of the sport. Do I think the ones who've left, by the way, are gone forever? Of course I don't. I think they'll be back uh, at a point at which it's advantageous to them uh, in commercial and in technological terms. But, you know, I'm not in a hurry to, to lose Toyota. You know, you and I, Stephen, stood in wonder. I, I seldom get to watch hybrid race cars at close quarters because I'm usually sitting in a press room or a broadcast booth. But we stood in wonder every time that thing fired up, I say fired up, you know, glided away under electric power and fired up after, what, uh, 40, 50 metres. Um, it's, they are, those things are astonishing vehicles, astonishing race cars with astonishing capability that I strongly suspect we won't see again in my lifetime. I think we'll see other amazing things, but those are amazing pieces of kit. I don't wish them dead. I just don't. But they are beginning to be from a different time. Something else is now required. And my view, uh, you know, I think as a right-thinking guy about these uh, these kind of matters, is that they've invested enough in the WC to at least be given confidence, either that this is going to turn in their direction and they'll be in the mix, gifted wins, but in the mix for to be competitive moving forward, or alternatively that they're no longer required on voyage and given plenty of opportunity to make that decision for themselves next up we've got Jacob Bame I think from Facebook I'm going to leave you to I'm yeah. gonna, it's normally my job to mangle the names so you're yeah, going to suffer this apologies I've probably butchered that <laughs> um, with Leo Rissell suffering injuries in his LMS crash at Monza what are the chances he'll be healthy, healthy enough to participate in the Le Mans 24 hours within to Europe yeah, sadly, I think very, very limited indeed. And uh, Leo, uh, if you're listening, um, of course we wish you well. I wish that weren't the case, but uh, I'm told um, fracture, minor fracture of uh, a vertebrae for Leo in that big shunt for the uh, Inter-Europol Ligier at Monza. Uh, Leo's name was missing from the provisional list. It was 85. <laughs> not 186 drivers on the provisional list for the one released by the ACO immediately after uh, the Monza meeting and uh, into Europol uh, you know, now moving forward uh, in another direction so sadly we are not going to see Leo Roussel uh, back at Le Mans I hope we see Leo back in the ELMS uh, good and soon very talented young man of course our European Le Mans series champion from just a couple of years ago and it was great to see him back in the seat of an LMP car in what has been so far a spectacular European Le Mans series young man if you're listening get well soon and come back to us we should probably send the same wishes to Mark Patterson as well, another man who will miss out on Le Mans. He will, and you know, uh, but uh, I know Mark is, uh, he's a plucky old dog, he really is. Um, Nasty injury to suffer, Um, you know, he is fit as a butcher's dog's personal trainer, and I've no doubt whatsoever that if that uh, injury can heal in good order, that Mark 
you know, for a man of 89 years old now, uh, Mark Patterson. It's 90, isn't it? No, that's next year. No, 90. Was, that, was it 89 or was he born in 1889? I can never remember. But uh, but Mark, you know, I think, I hope, will be on course to, to break the record. I know he's had his eyes on for a while. And that would be to uh, contest the 2020 Le Mans 24 Hours when he would become the oldest ever participant in the great race, uh, edging out Jack Kirken, um, who... Uh, Gerber. Gerber. Uh, Jack Kirken, of course, is... Uh, anybody in IMSA will know Jack Kirken is. I do apologise, Jack. Um, but Jack Gerber uh, from just a few years ago. So hopefully Mark Patterson can do it. Beloved member of the sports car paddock. Real sadness uh, that he was hurt at all. A particular sadness that being hurt uh, meant that he missed the race at Monza and they will now miss uh, the race at uh, the Le Mans 24 hours. Another one from Jacob, and this is, I like this one. He says, What do you think will be the future sports car racing fans' generation's perception of Fernando Alonso's WC career and his results? Will they perceive it as an occasional exercise of single seated driver to get more acclaim than he already has? Or will it mark the start of a new era where drivers' prowess behind the wheel is no longer defined by his ventures in one particular series on his car? Great. So I did this in my dissertation almost, didn't I? Did you? Yeah, God, you might want to answer the question in a moment. I'll give my first answer, which is history will tell. Um, you know, my view is I'm delighted we've got him. I think it's got a lot more people looking at sports car racing and not just the WC, of course. There's adventures and successes at Daytona as well. I guess if you're looking for an example of how it might be viewed, well, OK, it's slightly different in that it was a one-off, but look at Mika Hulkenberg. I think that encouraged the likes of Fernando to come, uh, coming along and taking the win at the Le Mans 24 Hours. A race, let's face it, that very many... Uh, racing drivers would love to win at some point in their career some of them would like to do it rather later there's nothing wrong with that if they've got focus on their single-seater careers Uh, but I think what it did do um, you know it's rather ironic really looking back now after the dramas that Marshall Pruitt's been uh, been writing about over the last week or so in IndyCar uh, that's actually what happened with I know we've got a question later on about Zach with Zach Brown and Fernando Alonso's initial adventures into IndyCar, what then came forward with uh, the sports car programme, Fernando. I hope we see a lot more of it. I think we are going to see a lot more of it. I hope we see drivers that are either currently ensconced in one part of the sport or perhaps taking a bit of a sabbatical, trying something a little different and seeing whether or not they enjoy that. It's a joy to me to see the smile on the face of Jensen Button, a man who... You know, had a very worthy career, indeed, or championship-winning career, of course, in um, in Formula One. But now he's having the time of his life in Super GT, off-road racing. He did the Baja race later this year. His LMP1 uh, program didn't perhaps put the same smile on his face. But you know what? It was always a pleasure to talk to while he was with us. Uh, and great, by the way, to see back today. Uh, seen him for the first time since that announcement. Brendan Hartley it was nice to spend a few moments on the chat with Brendan and thoroughly enjoying being back in the WC family and the sports car racing family. So, yeah, I, I don't know what's uh, the way in which it will be viewed. History is a funny thing. History tends not to be informed by what we think in the moment, but by, by the way that things sit in the overall scheme of things. The reality is that right now the history books say Fernando Alonso is a Le Mans 24 hours winner and my guess and it is a guess is that 
10 years from now, that's all most people will care about. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a similar conversation in some ways to some of the stuff that we talked about on the way here about the 1999 Le Mans 24 hours, albeit Group C, where when you talk to people, they will say that Group was the Group C? 99? No, but yeah. I was saying that as well. Yeah. When you've got people talking about the fact like the Porsche 956 and that era was absolutely unbelievable and yep. it's much better than now and then when you look at the actual when you look back in the history books of what we had it's a, it was pretty same picture. it was pretty samey I mean you know, the reality was make no mistake I missed the eye about Group C and you know and then we get to the reason 99 came up uh, we should explain is that is a moment that defined you know a, a very high water level in terms of the number and quality of the manufacturer-backed teams at the very top of sports car racing. The reality of that 1999 race was it was a catalogue of disaster for most of those factory teams. You know, Mercedes principal amongst them, but by no means the only ones. Uh, there were, you know, equal travails for Toyota, for Nissan, you know, for, uh, you know BMW hardly had a, a, a good race the year before in 98 with their then new car. So, just having those teams there, just having those drivers there, doesn't necessarily make it a better race. We're in a different world now with a global sports car racing product like the WEC, which simply needs those manufacturer-backed products, uh, programs, to sustain what you require in terms of the media reach and with the logistics to sustain uh, a major global programme. And to, to, to a lesser or greater extent, those same challenges are there, turned down a little because you're dealing with one principal large market with IMSA and uh, the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. I mean, with Fernand, going back to the Fernando Alonso point and what it's done with F1 drivers, I was talking to, I think it was Chris Medland from Racer about... You don't want to talk to Chris Medland at Racer. Well, you know, but sometimes we have Someone, to, someone's we? got Some, to. Well, what else are you going to do at Rolex 24 at 3 o'clock in the morning? Not talk um, to Chris Medland. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, and I was sort of asking him the question about how the F1 paddock perceives sports car racing now and how that's changed. And he, he said to me that we've got to the point now where... Formula One drivers are dashing up into the press room to follow the Le Mans 24 hours yep. after races. And I think there was a time when they wouldn't have cared. No, they I genuinely wouldn't agree. have cared. And I think, you know, part of that is because your mates have been there and your mates are there. So you've got, you know, the <laughs> likes of Nico Hülkenberg, the likes of Jensen Button, the likes of uh, Fernando Alonso. And of course, when you've got drivers of that quality um, and, you know, and with the, the kind of network they've got in that paddock. Um, then of course that does have an impact. I think it's I think it's a universally good thing. You know, we're all all of us when we've got the level of interest that you've got, I've got in this part of this sport. We all live in a bubble. We talk about the F1 bubble that most certainly is a sports car racing bubble. There's an argument that there's a WEC bubble or an IMSA bubble or even a, I'm sure there's a you know British GT bubble or a you know GT4 European Series bubble or I don't know whatever you want, might want to call it an SRO America bubble or that's probably just one journalist. But the reality is that um, what you've got at the end of that rainbow is that you can engage people if there's something of quality to engage them. And, you know, when, you, when you're when you out there and the racing is as good as it has been, it's not a surprise to me that you can actually engage with an audience better. You just have to do a better job. And if you're lucky, and if someone's taken that, that risk to come and play, 
let's face it, a Formula One driver, an existing Formula One driver, has got more to lose than to gain in terms of their reputation by putting themselves their head on the block and trying something different. I think it's a wonderful thing. I hope we continue to do more of this one because I think one of the things that was wrong, particularly towards the end of Bernie Eccleston's reign in Formula One, is it was ludicrously templated. It was ludicrously restrictive. And there was active discouragement from people trying that, from from putting any kind of that reach, any kind of that collateral anywhere other than where it paid, you know, the, uh, the teams in Formula One. And bonus people, that that era needed to die, and I hope it's now dead. Specifically talking about Alonso, I, I genuinely don't think he sat back and waited for the WC grid and P1 to be what it was now to come and drop. Oh God, no, no, no. He, he, I think he, he, you know, quietly he'll think it's a massive shame that he's not racing against 12 factory teams that are on a similar level. But you want you want to see Fernando Alonso, you know, in his purest form. Don't look at the WC right now. Because it's an easy thing to criticise. Look at what happened to the Rolex 24 hours of Daytona. Unbelievable. He took that race by its dangly bits and gave it a damn good tug. And the reality there is that he was the standout star of that race. Make no mistake whatsoever. Enough. Enough, Fernando. Let's move on and do something more. This one... This next one actually refers to that thread you were talking about, about the, uh, the Nissan GTR. Oh, does it? This is from Stephen Gate. Oh, um... He says, hopefully you've seen the fabulous Fred over the last five days about the GTO. Odd <laughs> enough. Yes, I have. Yes, we have. <laughs> um, it's enlightening regarding... Sorry. It's enlightening regarding the car's potential and the reasons for its shortcomings. With a working ERS, do you think it had the potential to win? In 2015, no, I don't. Um, would I have been very interested to see the potential of that car? Absolutely, of course I would. I still think it was an awesome idea. Um, I'm no aerodynamicist, I'm no mechanical engineer, uh, but I'm perfectly capable of reading words from people who are, and there's enough out there to say that actually that was quite interesting, that part of the, the concept was interesting, that part of the concept was interesting. Was the final way in which it was put together you know, a guarantee? Well, of course it wasn't, but you know, we've been through this before. They didn't really have a choice. If Nissan were going to come, they had to come with something that was pretty radical. Because, let's face it, if, with a lower budget, they tried to go head-to-head with the juggernaut, there was three other manufacturers that were already there, with the development in hybrid technology they'd had um, to that point, the reality was they were going to get their asses handed to them. Uh, They chose to go a different way. It didn't work. There are questions to be asked about the way in which some of that programme was managed and delivered but the reality was you know they gave it a whirl and again I'll say again I think people need to be given room to fail and they need to be congratulated for, for, for actually not for failure but for actually trying innovation um, it is interesting when you talk to people behind the scenes off the record about what they felt about that programme certain key themes come up some of them are directed at um, the concept or the, or the delivery or the personalities or the balance between the engineering prowess and the marketing potential of it and I've been on the record a million and one times about where I am on that one uh, I think an awful lot of cultural has talked about that sort of things but one thing that is interesting with this is some very well established and successful people have said to me 
that there were aspects of that program, of that concept, that actually were very interesting and had validity. And the more you get to the stage where you move away from an internet hater and into people who actually do a proper analysis of this, I've not read a single one, not one, proper analysis of that program that didn't have something positive to say about some aspects of that program. That there were things about that program that had validity, had potential. Were they ever going to deliver on that with or without the hybrid system? We will now never know. And that is a real shame. It's a massive shame. It's a massive shame we, we effectively didn't see that car get a fair shot. Indeed. And I've spoken to our good friend Darren Cox about this a couple of times since the dust has settled on it all. Sometimes in a bit of depth about it because it, it really genuinely interested me, that programme. Um, and his sort of mindset is that it's, it's really sad for him because there was a time when that car was out testing a bowling green, I think it was. Yep. Where the stopwatch wasn't lying, they were in with a shot lap time wise. When it worked, and I think that's that's the point. I think on that front, we've been over and over and over, and, and I've been over and over and over it with Darren and with others. For me, it's a wider principle. It's not about the Nissan GTR LM. It's about a change in the attitude of industry, society, media, public, everything. Which is, you fail, you're pilloried. You're not in any way given the space, the value um, that's trying something finding out that doesn't work quite well enough or at all be given the opportunity to try again that part of life appears to have moved away from being part of the conversation part of the regularity of the way in which you develop a concept we're now, you know, success or failure is judged immediately in an incredibly personal fashion. I'm just not very comfortable with that. Uh, you know, congratulations, by the way, to Ricardo de Villa for, you know, taking the veil off that one and starting that conversation. It's incredibly interesting. I do, honestly, uh, urge you to go and take a look at it and make your own mind up. Make your own mind up whether or not that's uh, a conversation worth having and continuing. It's a similar situation with... Um BMW with their uh, MTech program that they've, you know, that's just been announced isn't going to be in the WC. And when I spoke to the head of that program today, he he's of the mind of the similar with Nissan is that that extra year would have made a big difference. The year of development, year of competition will always make a difference. The problem there is, of course, that what you've had is the you know the big corporate body has decided we're not going to fund it anymore. That's it. We're done. Um, continue to fund it in IMSA, which is going to be a marketing-based decision without shadow of doubt. Um, but they, they, you know, they, they've decided not to fund it, and unfortunately, in MTech, you've got a very viable uh, race team that does not have the resources to continue to field and fund those cars going forward. It's a shame. Now we're heading on to the general section, all fun bit. Uh, so we're going to start. What do you with... mean the last bit hasn't been fun? What are you well, saying, Stephen? You saying our listeners are dull? I'm not saying this as well. They've been great, actually. Good yeah. questions. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll keep an eye on that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a shaky... Is that a shovel over there? Can it's you a, pass it's, me it's the shovel? A, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shaky attitude for a first appearance <laughs> on the Weekend Sports Girls. We'll... Uh, <laughs> cracking on with General. First one comes from uh, George Buda from Facebook. He says, With the Audi R8 GT3 and the Lamborghini Huracan sharing the same engine, and because of the fact that Audi and Lamborghini belong to the same company... What are the similarities between these cars and the other parts? How much sharing is there? 
Um, well, it's the powertrain. So if you actually, if you look inside, uh, for instance, a Lamborghini Super Trofeo car, amongst others, you will see, on very many of them, a badge that says, built by Audi Sport. Mm. Um, and so the powertrain for the Huracan and the, uh, and the Audi are basically identical. The reality beyond that is, devil's in the detail. The way in which that performance is delivered, the aerodynamic of the car, obviously the complete bodywork of the car and the rest of it, is basically down to uh, Lamborghini Squadra Corsa in the case of the Huracan, Audi Sport Customer Racing uh, in the case of the Audi. And make no mistake, they are rivals and they are they are vying for the available customer base in every single marketplace. And I'm sure there's a fair amount of um, how to put this healthy competition with lots of high fives and donuts around the office when one customer goes one way rather than the other uh, but very different in terms of the way in which those cars perform out on track because they have different performance characteristics because of the major differences with the package but, but the, the one major part of those cars which is effectively identical is the powertrain next question is so difficult to answer that we've got family members clearly of the person involved in this question asking you about it <laughs> Carl Brown asks how hot is Zach Brown's seat at McLaren how hot I was thought, I thought, I thought, <laughs> for a horrible moment I thought you were going to ask me Carl how hot is Zach Brown the answer is not that hot it's not for you to answer right? no it's not for me for answer I think Mrs Brown was answer about that right Zach Okay, well, we've just come through a question where, you know, we've again said the thing that the, the, the Zach and uh, Fernando Alonso to IndyCar the first time around. Did we not the last time around? First time around um, was, I thought, a very good move. Um, it's a really good question. He needs to see success somewhere quickly. Very quickly indeed, in fact. Um, are we seeing signs of life in the... Uh, the McLaren Formula 1 uh, programme yeah we are beginning to see that beginning to turn around but god it needed to because I'm afraid the McLaren Formula 1 programme through the uh, the well it seems odd to call such a short period of time an era but through the latest McLaren Honda um, times didn't exactly shine a particularly fetching light on much at working uh, you know, lots of fingers were pointed and then there wasn't a great deal of evidence once those uh, aspects of the programme were changed to show that they were pointed in the right direction. Uh, in particular, lately, with the uh, the way in which the uh, current IndyCar, or what was the current IndyCar uh, programme, was conducted, well, we've seen a couple of instances of reporting there which shone a bit of a light on there. And whether or not that was... Zach pointing the finger correctly or Zach deflecting is not for me to judge because that's not a press room nor a paddock that I'm directly involved in. As for where we are in terms of the potential for Hypercar and the Le Mans programme, um, I'd like to hear what Zach wants to do and I'd like to hear when Zach wants to do it and I'd like to hear only that at this point. What I'd actually like to hear today is McLaren are coming. McLaren are coming in, insert name of season, McLaren are coming with, insert solution as to whether or not that is a hypercar, a GTE Plus, or a DPI Gen 2, uh, delete as applicable. Beyond that, I'm bored of the politics. 
it's very difficult not to get involved in the politics when you've got fingers in all sorts of different pies. But I think Zach now should be thinking hard about the way in which he and the brand, which he is very much the key person behind, is being viewed in the wider world. Uh, he's an extremely able guy. What we don't want is that we confuse at this moment his willingness to comment, and he's very willing to comment and to engage, being confused with an ability to deliver a programme. What's needed right now from McLaren is a decision on whether or not programmes are going to be delivered or not. And clarity on that, I think, is long overdue. Bonnie Lass 47. Hey, Bonnie Lass, how are you? From USCR Reddit. Why does the Twist logo use number 19 on the car? It's because um, it's, it's nothing to do with the fact that it's a 2019 season, or not, you decide. It's the fact that, um, that if you had, actually had the combined waist measurements of both Marshall and I, it's the reverse of that. It's 91 inches. Next up, we've got Joshua Barrett. Hey, Josh. With all the updates at Donington, thanks so much for you, might we see sports car return? LMS. Good, good question. LMS unlikely. While we still have a WC and LMS together, because Silverstone is the defined home for that for the foreseeable future, as far as I can see. I'd love to see sports cars back at Donington. I think they race very well there. Might we see the possibility that that might uh, happen for, let's say, for the sake of arguing, uh, Blompat? No reason at all why not. It's a popular venue for British GT. That is an SRO run event. Um, there are some logistical reasons why uh, Silverstone, uh, sorry, sorry, why Brands Hatch in particular is a f- more favoured option. It's clearly a lot closer to mainland Europe uh, than Donington Park, and it's a high quality venue itself. And of course, now being under the same ownership, um, you know, there's, there's little to be chosen between the two from MSV's point of view. I hope we do. I can't quite see at this moment where that might come from, is honest answer, Josh. Um, I love Donington Park. It's always been a kind of happy hunting ground for me in terms of the racing I I go to enjoy, the racing I go to cover. Um, I don't see ELMS being back there anytime soon, whilst we still have the WC as we know it, because I think that's double header. Excuse me while I go through some Belgian potholes at remarkable speed in the DSC front bus. Um, I don't see that uh, happening anytime soon unless there's a change in the way that the WEC or whatever succeeds that in the whatever we might foresee future uh, being defined. This is from James Buffet. Buffet? Or Beefer? Beffer? I apologise. How are we spelling that? B E T H A. Okay, we'll go with Betha. Hey, James. <laughs> What's the Mang- reason? Mangling your name at, uh, what is this, 80 miles an hour in Belgium. Here you go. What is the reason for some teams using fluorescent colours on some of the spokes on the wheels? Is it for aesthetics or to keep track of wheel position in front of the back, back side to side or for some other reason? Uh, I think it's so they can know where the valve is on the, uh, on the on the wheel. I think that's what it is. It's tyre pressures. I'm pretty certain that's what most of them do. Although it does look cool, so it could be that as well. Johnny Schultz at Johnny Trotz on Twitter says... Is there any chance for the Nurburgring 24 Hours becoming part of the IGTC? 
uh, I think the chances are very limited. The IGTC, by definition, uh, Stefan Mattel wants there to be a uh, race on each continent. I know he's targeting South America next. Antarctica can only be a couple of years away. Uh, so the reality is we've got the Spa 24 hours. That is very much the blue ribbon defence for the IGTC, although Australia will be will be uh, complaining bitterly that it should be the Bathurst 12 hour there. But the reality is we've got the Spa 24 hours. Um, no, I don't see that happening anytime soon. I think the Nürburgring 24 hours operates just fine as effectively a standalone event, albeit it's got the the kind of the covering fire of VLN and the Adek uh, qualification race, which we saw just last weekend. Uh, but no, I don't see that being part of the IGTC for that reason, that reason alone. It's certainly events of high quality, but the Spa 24 hours, unless something goes wrong between SRO and the Royal Automobile Club in Belgium, which doesn't look likely, I think is imperious there. Impervious rather there. Crushingly disappointing 97 cars at the uh, 24 qualifying race. Crushing the only 97? Only 97. That is appalling. James Counter on Facebook says, What's the coldest you've ever been whilst doing your job? And I think I know the tale you're going to tell about this. Is this Dubai? 24 hours? Oh my Thomas god. No, 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 you've, you've reminded me of that. Well, actually, that was pretty darn cold. That have been very cold indeed. Snetter to damn you. Um, I've uh, been very cold indeed at uh, race meetings, but you're seldom colder, oddly enough, even in biting wind and rain, and even in driving snow and hail, as we've had recently, than in an overly air conditioned press room or indeed broadcast booth. Cota. Cota. Um, you could hang meat in the Cota press room, and the Cota press room is enormous. You could park a B52 in there and still move around around it. Uh, it's massive, but it is always ridiculously cold in there. Uh, something about American air conditioning. But the tale, have we not, have we not sold it, uh, of the 24 hours of Dubai some years ago? If you've not been to or seen the uh, Dubai Autodrome, it's effectively in a desert on the outskirts of Dubai. And the Dubai 24 hours, oddly enough, takes place over 24 hours. And that means that at some points it gets dark. And when it gets dark in a desert, it gets very cold indeed. Uh, even though, joining the chorus, it's a desert. But the defining thing about most air conditioning systems, automatic air conditioning systems, is they operate either by keeping a room at a particular temperature or by keeping a room at a certain level below the ambient external temperature. What that means, of course, if the external ambient temperature is a desert, you're going to be comfortable uh, during the hours of daylight. It also means that when it goes cold outside, it's going to be freezing inside. And yes, indeed, uh, the Radio Show Limited crew, from memory, it was myself, it was John Langdorf, it was Paul Trosswell, and uh, I think the another one, I'm trying to remember who else was in there, uh, were literally freezing overnight, holding my laptop across my arms to try and get some warmth in um, until we got into the wee small hours and the sun began to poke its head over the Burj Al Arab. Uh, and yes, at about half past six, Steve, you're absolutely right, there was a polite knock at the broadcast booth door and in came a almost apologetic Thomas Edgar with six cups of Starbucks coffee um, asking whether or not we might quite like a cup of coffee. To this day, I still maintain Thomas Edgar saved my life. That was how cold I was. 
next one we've got Joseph Kang on Facebook he says considering many OEMs are selling SUVs and CUVs in greater numbers compared to their sedans coupes touring and GT cars could you foresee a time in the near future where we might get a racing series based on mid-size SUVs well have we got that with the I-Pace trophy yeah I guess we have yeah. I guess we have we, we have seen SUVs uh, out in competition principally uh, we've had a couple of Lexus SUVs at the Nürburgring 24 hours more recently there's a small SUV that sold in Europe Toyota the crossover the a crossover uh, in Europe but I sort of hope not on the basis that they're really nice things to drive across Europe or a continent uh, we're not doing that at the moment with the fun bus which is uh, a very ordinary Ford S-Max by the way if you're uh, from Marshall Pruitt's side of the uh, of the pond you have to look that up at the internet but it's just a lovely thing um, but so I hope not because for me I think they're all pretty ugly sorry <laughs> they're one ugly race cars wouldn't be quite hilarious um, in certain instances but Maybe the right driver said. Well, maybe actually, what we need to do is to persuade the people behind the stadium trucks uh, uh, series to actually take it to the next level, get sponsorship from all these companies that make uh, you know the SUVs and crossovers, and have them with the SUV bodies. You know, so maybe we could get a kind of a Cadillac Escalade and a Nissan Qashqai, you know, leaping over jumps around you know the Gold Coast wherever. Uh, they're going nuts with Robbie Gordon and the guys but I we don't get that the sort of inevitability that we're going to who's going to be the first person to put one in touring cars you think oh. <laughs> it's going to happen yeah, yeah, it's, it's going to happen last two questions wow we've got now and they're both from Right Turn Lover the first one is that's not like Right Turn Lover sending you questions I know he says again with his tongue firmly in his cheek and it involves Joe Bradley, so it's going to be good. It involves Joe Bradley and right yeah. to lover. So that's not a mental image I ever want to have again in a hurry. <laughs> so Joe Bradley is infamous for inspecting fluids lost by race cars and tasting them when he does his pit lane reporting. He does. In your media career, have you done similar or similarly interesting detective work? Similarly interesting detective work. I I, I bow to the the massive media powers of Joe Bradley. Joe is hands down one of my favourite uh, people in the media. He is a very bad man indeed. He's known as the naughty uncle um, of the sports car paddock. He asks some of the very best questions. If you've not seen the question he asked to Fernando Alonso at Daytona, I urge you to find that on the internet because it was hilarious. Um, have I tasted fluids? I have actually done it once or twice. It's it's the slight problem with that is I've absolutely no idea what brake fluid tastes like, so uh, it's sort of pointless. But um, detective work. I've got two things that I've immediately came to mind that you've done. Go on. Okay. One is the new the newer generation of LMP2s. Right. And the amount of work you did behind the scenes when we were at Paul Rickard. Yes, but that. And the other one is the Brembo brakes. Brembo brake. Well done, sir. Yeah. Well, that one. Uh, not quite Joe's level of hands-on analysis but it was you didn't those, taste the brakes did you didn't taste the brakes but it did take a little bit of chasing down to find out whether um, that was one team not doing a very good job or whether or not there was genuinely a problem and it emerged there very much was a problem and that one team we weren't sure whether or not they were going to do a good job was Manor because Manor suffered four massive failures of uh, brake discs 
in very short order doing a massive amount of damage six figures worth of damage and not a small six figure sum of damage either um, and yet it was one of those moments say not quite the same thing but I get where, I hear where you're coming from that you've just got to take a view to whether or not you want to actually um, put a story into play from a valued supplier in the motorsport industry um, to say, sorry guys, but you're not doing a good enough job here and this is putting people at risk. And ultimately, that proved to be the correct story. Um, changes were made, and God bless them, for the, for the ACO, they may take a caning from time to time, but the ACO and the WEC uh, did put a change in place immediately uh, to mean that they can change the monogated supplier of that component. And what I believe, do I think lives are safe? No. I think those cars are remarkably safe. Do I think a huge amount of potential damage was saved? Yes. For those that don't know what that was about, it was a change in the um, way in which the particular brake discs were being sourced. It was a change from a plant in Europe to a plant in Asia. And something had clearly gone wrong in terms of the quality of that particular product. It's not a crack at uh, the, the company concerned. In fact, the company that replaced uh, that company's products on the homologated list is actually part of the same group. Uh, so it's not a crack at them. Something went badly wrong. It needed to be sorted. I'm perfectly happy to have been you know, one of those at the vanguard of making that happen. When we write those sort of stories, Graham, do you love it? Are you terrified? Or a bit of both? You've got to be sure you're right. And you've got to be sure that you're not being led down the garden path. And, you know, look, you know, I come from two worlds, a world in PR and a world in journalism, where, let's face it, people not telling you the entire truth is a kind of... It's a daily hazard, really. It, it is a, a kind of... It's something that you've got to learn to... To, uh, you know, to anticipate and, and when you are around. I'm you know, perfectly happy to say there are lots of character feelings I'm quite happy to forgive people but being lied to is not one of them. You know, you will not lie to me twice. If you lie to me and I find you out and in particular if you lie to me and it then proves to be embarrassing moving forward, be sure you're not going to be trusted the next time. And, you know, I know of people out there that think they're cleverer than they actually are and be assured guys that you know you're the guys that we talk about in the background and say you're never going to believe the load of old bullshit he's tried on me this time but, but I am proud when we make a difference like that and I'm proud because it helps to sustain part of the sport sport that we love and you know there's lots of examples of that kind of journalism still being out there and still being prevalent and that's particularly brave of those journalists and I'm not saying that in my regard because I've done some work with the sanctioning body in any case to explain what we're doing and why because we live in a litigious world now and it's easy to send a legal paper it's easy to, to make a threat it's less easy to acknowledge faults and that I'm afraid is a failing of where we currently stand in terms of the balance between right and wrong um, doing the right thing by customers and doing the right thing by your, your, your own corporate body last question Right turn, lover says. The Indy 500 qualifying reminded me how much I miss qualifying where cars can fail to qualify. Can we spice up the lots of qualifying? That's the question, by the way. Yes, there was, and there's going to be more. 
<laughs> Can we spice up the Le Mans 24 hours with a GT Pro qualifying session with the slowest manufacturer sent packing? <laughs> I think not. <laughs> not in the current. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a slight difference on that. I do think the space you you recall that we we dallied with um, the prospect of potentially having GT Pro sprint races um, or a GTO Pro only race. Sadly, I think uh, we're getting away from the point where that's sustainable. I do recall a conversation with my uh, beloved uh, ex-colleague, ex-business uh, partner, and my founding editor at Daily Sports Car, where in the, 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 the point at which uh, ALMS was at one of those points in its pomp with the fantastic Porsche versus Acura battles down at P2 and a great factory-backed, and for that matter, some privateer efforts in what's now known as GTLM that uh, the prospect there of the potential for a kind of a, a sprint race one driver sprint race with a big purse you know with just an LMP2 only race or just a GT only race uh, you know run what you brung uh, type of effort with those cars and of course that's exciting I sort of know what you mean you know the um, the days of pre-qualifying at Le Mans predates my days of covering that race, so it's not a process that I'm familiar with on the ground. I'm certainly familiar with following up on uh, reports of it, but it would be interesting, wouldn't it, to um, see what the reaction would be from some of the teams now, perhaps from the LMS, to say, tell you what, the last last five places on the grid will be defined by either your time at uh, you know, a pre-qualifying or test day or indeed a short race. My guess is there'd be a very much mixed bag of opinion on that. The thought that you would do that with a factory team doesn't even begin to occur to me. Um, I think those days are gone. The risks are just too much in terms of their willingness and ability to sustain that level of disappointment that you know so very many people in sports car racing build their season around those big blue ribbon events and particularly in Europe Le Mans and in no small part of course in, in IMSA the big blue ribbon events that IMSA now hold as well I think it would be a tough one to take particularly if you retain a situation where a world championship by definition means that one of those rounds you're entitled to take part in every round uh, that being the Le Mans 24 hours less certain that there might not be a case for something uh, if the health of the European Le Mans series increasingly looking by the way like increasing health of the Asian Le Mans series presents you with the incredibly difficult decisions that the ACO clearly had this year might there be a prospect there or something well that's one maybe to mull over um, for the kind of questions we'd like to be asking ourselves as things move forward um, we're not a million miles away we're about Lille aren't we about Lille um, so number one thanks first of all to Stephen Kilby for stepping in for this unique I hope edition of the weekend sports cars aboard the DSC fun bus uh, on our way back from Spark Frankishon livening up no end what is I think you'll agree Stephen the dullest journey in motorsports uh, that being a journey to or from Eurotunnel to Spa uh, three hours of unbridled tedium uh, but th- thanks to Stephen for 
you know, helping us to host this one through and for doning out the questions. Um, thanks as well, of course, as always, to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers for their invaluable support for the weekend sports cars and all the rest of the Marshall Brewing podcast. And once again, I'm sure all of you listening in will join with me in saying, get well soon, Mrs. Pruitt. And uh, Marshall, look after the lady. That's more important, even, than the weekend sports cars. For now, and until next week, good night from us.